for today. Once again, we thank you for this beautiful day uh, that you've given to us. We thank you that even as everything is so shaken up in the world right now, we know that our souls can find their rest in you. We know the only way that that's possible is by accepting you, uh, it's accepting your death and resurrection as being a, substitu a substitution on our behalf for our sin. Uh, we would take you as the Savior for that sin and make you the King over the rest of our lives. I pray that you would bless our time this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is always timeless. It is always relevant. It is always true, no matter what the culture and society around us claims. I, I thank you that we can find your truth in your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here are some everyday objects that I, I never knew the purpose of until I watched a YouTube video, of, of YouTube video about it and that you probably don't know the purpose of, or if you do, you're a lot smarter than I am, until I relay them to you. Here's the first one. For instance, did you ever wonder why when you zipper up certain zippers, they don't fall back down? That could be pretty embarrassing, depending on the zipper, uh, on a piece of clothing you have. If you leave the zipper with the tab facing outward, it would eventually work its way back down. But if you press the zipper tab all the way down, there is actually a locking mechanism on certain zippers that's built, built into it to prevent it from falling back down by itself. Ever wonder why there are holes at the tops of pen caps? It's hardly there to keep the ink from drying out, right? <laughs> Doesn't seem like it provide that much protection to that. That doesn't make any sense. Instead, manufacturers put that in the top so that if you accidentally swallow one, you can still breathe. I learned that this week. Okay. <laughs> Why is there a ribbed edge on US coins? It's not for some kind of better grip. It's to prevent people from shaving off the edges to reuse the metal alloy and other things and still be able to get a Coke out of the machine. And lastly, did you ever wonder what the purpose of that cylinder at the end of the uh, connection cables is, what that's all about? Well, it's actually there. It's not for no purpose. It's there to decrease the amount of high-frequency interference that can mess with the signal from whatever you're trying to connect to your TV. In all of these everyday examples, the purpose of what certain objects is designed for was not necessarily apparent unless it was revealed to us. In our passage this morning, Jesus tells the Pharisees and others eavesdropping in on this conversation that they will not know his purpose in this first trip to earth until something else happens to reveal that. We'll find out what that is, what that means for us, and how that affects how we view the rest of our lives. Last week, we continued in Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees as they once again challenged his authenticity and who he claimed to be. Jesus, knowing that he had already given four witnesses to his authenticity and authority as God, only reiterates that since he's God, he can give testimony about himself. 
And not only that, but he also has God the Father, the one with whom he shares an intertwined and inextricable connection to and relationship with, who is the other witness to his deity and authority. When the Pharisees just could not understand what Jesus meant when he said that he would be going away and where he was going, they couldn't go, Jesus made an incredibly powerful statement. In verses 23 through 24, which we covered extensively last week, Jesus says, You will always have a limited and finite understanding of the universe, the world, God, and his word. However, I am God, and I have access to eternal knowledge, and I was even there when everything was created. You have no clue what anything is or means without God revealing it to you. And here's the bottom line, Jesus says. You will continue in your sins and die in your sins and get what you deserve for your sins unless one thing happens. Unless you believe that I am. We looked at all the many ways that God the Father and God the Son are simply I am and all that that means last week. In short, for those of you who aren't aware of this name that God gave to himself, this is the name God gave for himself when Moses asked him who he should tell the Israelites in a world of numerous false deities who sent him to free them. And God simply responds with, I am who I am. And tell the Israelites that none other than I am has sent you. By this, God meant that he needs no other clarification. He needs no other description. Especially in connection and especially in comparison to all the other false deities or beliefs in this world. He simply is. With all of his characteristics, and you either take him for who he is, and take his word and its plain commands, or you don't. It's as simple as that. There's no gray area here. It's as simple as that. And it's as simple as this for our eternal destiny. You either continue in your sinful state, never believing that Jesus is also I am or God himself, and die in your sins and get the eternity spent in hell that that deserves, or you repent of your sin, take Jesus as the substitutionary, atoning Savior from that sin, make him the king over your life, and be saved from that. That's it. It's as simple as that. When the people answer Jesus with a response that shows their ignorance, somewhat clouded by arrogance and willful rejection with, Who are you? Jesus simply responds with, Everything I've been trying to tell you all this time. You're just not listening. I've told you over and over that God the Father is who sent me, and everything I say, I only relay to you from what I've heard from him. Have you ever tried explaining some kind of concept or technology to someone, and they just can't get it? This is what the, Alex has that experience with me. But, 
This is what I see here. It's this back and forth between the revelation of God himself and finite human beings not being able to wrap their minds around it. I mentioned last week that even if the smartest person that has ever existed thinks they have the universe figured out, they'll still have a pathetically woeful understanding of it. Why? Because they're still human. And we'll always be bound by finite and limited human sight, intelligence, and brain power. All we can know about God is, is what he and his eternal wisdom chooses to reveal to us. Not what we can come up with on our own. And all we can know about who God is, what his standards are, what he expects of us, and the only way to heaven can only be found in his word. And not what we can come up with or manipulate or downplay or blow out of proportion. Furthermore, the only way we can even begin to understand God, his plan, and his salvation is for the Holy Spirit to work in us and open our eyes to be able to spiritually see it. That's how God designed it. We're completely reliant upon God for even our most simplest understanding of him. If we just try to understand God from human experience, we still will not be able to wrap our minds around it. See, this is what the people's reaction still is to what Jesus has revealed to to them about who he is. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 8. We're going to be picking up in verse 27. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 8. It's in the New Testament. Uh, You can look it up in the table of contents or just find the New Testament. Just go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Or you can look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. But I want all of us to see this together. John chapter 8, picking up in verse 27, we read this in this conversation. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that Jesus could know what people were thinking and what was going on in their hearts. Knowing this, we see Jesus' extended response here, verse 28. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. NASB inserts he in there. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. If you remember from last week, you'll see in at least the New American Standard Bible that the word he, you'll see the word he next to it. But what you'll also notice in the word, about the word he next to the words I am is that they're in italics. And what that means is that's not in the original language. What's in the original language is just simply I am. That, that name that God gave for himself when he spoke to Moses. And similar to Jesus' revelation about his role in judging people's souls and how he had already given that teaching about a year and a half before this point, this is a reiteration of what he had already taught regarding himself. Right towards the beginning of his ministry, about six months in, all the way back in John chapter 3, one of the high-level Pharisees, a highly educated man named Nicodemus, went to Jesus at night to find out more about what this guy was teaching. 
But talk about someone not being able to wrap his mind around what Jesus was saying, at least at that point. When Nicodemus, perhaps antagonistically, says to Jesus, certainly you don't mean by being born again that a man needs to re-enter his mother's womb, right? You see how ridiculous that sounds, right, Jesus? You see it. Jesus responds, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That is a very bold statement to make. But what it means is that unless someone is born again by repentance from their sin, which the water of John the Baptist's baptism symbolized, and unless someone is born again by the indwelling Holy Spirit, which can only be given after repentance and a recognition of Jesus as Savior and King, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's no wiggle room there. Unless someone does this, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's it. There are no additional rituals, sacraments, or extra good works that need to be done to earn it. In fact, all you can do is to receive God's salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf for yourself in repentance. If you try to earn it, you've already lost it. If you try to earn it, you've already lost it. Jesus follows that up with a very similar statement to the context of our passage this morning. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you people do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. Through no other way but in him. John 3.14, about the same Son of Man who both descended from heaven and who would eventually ascend back to heaven, both understands and can reveal these heavenly truths that humanity simply can't wrap their minds around unless God opens their eyes to see it. And contrary to what the Jewish people of Jesus' day believe, and what a lot of people in this world continue to believe, you cannot earn your eternal life by number of prayers, amount of money given to charity, or just generally trying to be a good person. None of that matters. Our salvation is only hinged on believing in the Son of God, especially when he was revealed to be that. At this point, how would Jesus be revealed to be that? Verse 28 tells us that all his revelation will come together when he is lifted up and then the people he's talking to and us today would realize that he truly is I am. Again, we read in verse 28, so Jesus said, when you, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but speak these things as the Father taught me. How would Jesus be lifted up here? 
For that, once again, we go back to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus about three years prior to this. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life. If you remember when we covered this about a year ago, don't worry, I'm not expecting you to actually remember this. I know it was a year ago. But Jesus has already talked to Nicodemus about him descending and him ascending and bringing that to a whole new light. He descended from heaven as the prophesied son of man that the prophet Daniel spoke about as the Messiah and will ascend back to heaven again. But there's another elevation and another ascension that must occur before he could ascend back to heaven. In the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 21, the Israelites were complaining about all that God had miraculously provided for them once again. It wasn't just that they were complaining. God had provided manna for them day after day through miraculous intervention, and they were complaining about the fact that they didn't want to eat it. Who here has had a toddler that's reacted the same exact way? They just didn't want to eat it. It was the height of human ungratefulness. So in discipline of them as his children, taught you got to keep, Two and a half million people who were just freed from slavery in Egypt, you have to keep them in some sort of order. So in discipline of them as his children, God sent a plague of poisonous snakes among the Israelite camp. In distress, as many people were dying from these snake bites, the people cried out to Moses that they had sinned and for Moses to intercede on their behalf to God to forgive them and take away the snakes. In response, God told Moses to construct a serpent made out of bronze and lift it up on a pole. Numbers 21 says that God says that anyone who looked at the serpent would be healed and not die. Does anybody here see the connection Jesus is making to himself here? It's not directly said in Numbers 21 in that account, but for one to look up at the serpent... What did they have to be feeling in their heart? They had to be feeling regret, that they knew that they had sinned, that they were repenting of that selfish mindset and they were seeking God's forgiveness. They then showed this repentance by an action, looking at the serpent. If you didn't believe it could work, or you didn't think you needed forgiveness, or that you hadn't done anything wrong, you would simply continue to receive what everyone was receiving out of consequence. And it's the exact same reference Jesus is making in our passage today. Jesus likened this bronze serpent to himself in that in keeping with everything else he had already revealed to Nicodemus, one must repent. One must come to the recognition that their sin must lead them to repentance. It wasn't enough that one just felt bad and then moved on with their life. It wasn't an, that recognition must be manifested in the physical action of repentance. What did that physical action of repentance look like, according to the words directly out of Jesus' mouth? That one must repent of their sin and Look to Jesus and only Jesus for that forgiveness, salvation, and healing. When Jesus hung on the cross and declared, it is finished, it was all fulfilled. And who he is 
was fully revealed. This is what Jesus meant when he said to the people, they would finally see that he is I am and all he claimed to be, the messianic king, the deliverer from sin, and God himself. And here's why. It was only when Jesus breathed his last breath and died that the payment for humanity's sin was completed and God would start using his Holy Spirit to work in people's hearts to lead them to put their faith in him. Before, the sacrifice wasn't made. Our sin's death debt payment wasn't paid for. And we were still blind and still lost in our sins. Once the spotless lamb died, however, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple, the place that it was said God's presence resided from the rest of the world, was torn in two, making it possible for the very first time for humanity to have full access to the kingdom of God. And it was at that point that God's Holy Spirit started working on hearts to see Jesus fully as I am and lead them to repentance. Not only that, but when Jesus busted out of the tomb three days later, he fully proved that he was I am and everything he said he was. So when Jesus was lifted up on the cross for everyone to look to in repentance like Moses' bronze serpent and he kicked down the door, of his, the, the door of his tomb, he truly did reveal that he is I am. As Jesus says in the second part of verse 28, and as he's already said numerous times, he only does and speaks what God the Father tells him to do. If someone doesn't believe what he did and said, their beef isn't really with Jesus, it's with the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. And beyond that, as Jesus has already said, if someone doesn't believe that he's God, and it's only through repentance and his death and resurrection that anyone can have God and his heaven, then they don't really believe in God to begin with. You can't just say you believe in God and not take Jesus as all that he did and said he was. You can't have one without the other. You must take Jesus as God and the only source of salvation or you don't have God nor any hope of heaven at all. Like Jesus said, you just continue in your sins, die in your sins, and go to the only place your sins earned you, a place of eternal emotional and physical suffering called hell. And like Jesus has said several times, you can take it or leave it, but nothing will change that. Jesus has already dealt with a lot of antagonism, challenge, and opposition. And he knows he's going to have to go through the epitome of that opposition when he has to be tortured, beaten beyond recognition, and nailed to a form of execution that the Romans had purposely perfected to be as slow and excruciating of death as humanly possible. He knew what awaited him. But this is what strengthened him to keep going. In the face of that imminent death he had just described, that of being lifted up on the cross, verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus always knew that no matter what he faced, 
what darkness he had to battle, what temptations he had to deal with, what ignorance and opposition he faced from the ones he came to save. He had one person that he could always count on to be there with him. We're going to come back to this in a second. For now, I want to emphasize verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. We don't know the level of which these people put their faith in him, for it would be tested time and time again, and some would walk away from him since he wasn't doing what they thought he should be doing as the prophesied messianic king. They didn't have the full revelation as Jesus had not been lifted up on the cross, dying upon it, and then rising again from the dead three days later. But guess what? We do. None of us have an excuse to not put our full faith in Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf unless we just don't want to or see a need for it. And as Jesus said, your beef is not with Jesus. It's with the God you claim any kind of belief in. If you believe in any other version of God other than what is plainly stated in his word, then you don't actually believe in him. The belief that every deity or force that anyone on earth believes is really all the same is a mirage. What it is is a lie straight from hell. If you actually read God's word, you'll see that Jesus is very clear that no one can have God or have God's heaven unless you take him and him alone as your only basis for salvation, repentance, and entrance into heaven. It sounds exclusive, Because it is. But it's the most inclusive exclusiveness that ever exists. Because it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. Your past. The sins you struggle the most with. Your socioeconomic background. Ethnicity. Race. Or how good or bad we think we are. It only matters if you recognize the gravity of your sin, that it separates you from most holy God, and that in his love, he wanted to provide a way for you to be restored back to him only by repenting of your sin based on Jesus paying for your sin death debt on the cross and rising again three days later to prove he's everything he said he was, everything wrapped up in the name I am. If you've never done that, make today the day of your salvation. Now, let's go back to Jesus' assurance of knowing his Father was always with him. When we take Jesus as our only source of salvation for our sin and commit the rest of our lives to please him as king, we get this same relationship with God the Father. Now, obviously, we know that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, had an inexpressibly close relationship with God the Father, but what we get is a glimpse and a taste of that relationship. How do we do that? How do we get that? By the indwelling Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who comes and makes a home within us at the exact moment of our repentance and commitment to Jesus. He works in our hearts to not only convict us of individual sins we still need to get right with God, not only transform the whole way we see God and view the world around us, not only grow the characteristics of God, His love, His peace, His patience, His goodness, His kindness, His faithfulness, etc. within us, 
But he does something else too. The Apostle Paul writes this, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But what you have received is a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, the most intimate name a child could call their father. Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. All that suffering you're going through right now does not mean that God hates you or doesn't love you anymore. The suffering you've just been through or are going through or will go through proves you are God's child if you've given your life to him. How? Well, that's what we just read from God's word. If we're striving to live our lives to please Jesus, God is using the suffering we're going through right now to grow us, to burn off that which is only destructive to us, to teach us something, to reveal more of himself to us, his faithfulness and his presence towards us. If the suffering in our lives means that God is disciplining us for something in our lives, we're refusing to get right with him, that still means he's with us and he loves us too much to not make us more and more like Jesus. We also have to remember that we're living in a fallen, broken, evil world. And that if we're growing in our faith, and seriously living to please him with our lives and the way we're leading and raising our families, guess who is not going to be happy with any of that? The enemy of our souls and the souls of our families. And he is going to throw everything he can at us to seek to destroy us, to make us doubt God's presence or plan in our lives, or at the very least, distract us from what God wants us to be focused on. Remember this. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but what we are fighting against is evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. I say all of this not to cause fear, but because, again, like I mentioned earlier, I know many of us in our church family are dealing with this spiritual attack and have been for a while. Why? Because you're growing in your faith. You're taking steps to please him with your lives. You're standing up and against the lies of the enemy. And you're leading your family in the truth of God's word. You're becoming more involved in his church. You're taking territory from the kingdom of darkness. And you're standing in resistance to his roars in your face. Because of that, you have a target on your back by the enemy, by spiritual and demonic attack, and by the people he's using to attack you. We're seeing this intense spiritual attack more and more, and more and more in your face towards believers more than ever before. Do not be caught off guard. We will continue to see it become more and more intense with each passing day. I've said it many times before and I will say it again. Right now, believers in Jesus who hold to an accurate and therefore true understanding of God's word, its standards, its commands, and what it says is truth and what it says is not 
our enemy number one right now. And it will just continue to be more and more like that each day. I'll only say this about this past Tuesday. When the so-called right to murder children, precious babies created in the image of God by God himself, and even violently dismembering them while still alive and screaming in pain until they die, take center stage for what you're voting for, the times are truly evil. Satan is laughing his head off with his deceptions. Do not be surprised by this. The world will simply become more and more evil and more and more dark. It has to because it's prophesied to, and then God will have his justice. But who has never left you? God has never left you. His Holy Spirit continues to remind you that you are his child. He's putting his full armor on you to protect you from the fiery arrows of our enemy. As Paul also writes in Ephesians 6. He's equipping you through his word and the teaching and preaching of his word. His angelic armies are fighting unseen battles over and around you and your family that you have no clue of. Rest in the promise that no matter the suffering and the opposition, your heavenly Father will never leave you and his Holy Spirit will constantly remind you of that. He will always use the suffering in your life to make you stronger in his power. And the battles you do go through will serve to be a brightly shining testimony to a dark world that has no hope outside of Jesus. So, Knowing that your heavenly Father through his Holy Spirit is right with you through every trial, every trouble, every pain, every confusion, attack, opposition, and unspeakable suffering. Let us all take this as our battle cry and be strengthened by this from God's word. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. God has never and will never leave us. The attacks will become more and more intense. Stand firm in the armor and power of God. The world is supposed to get more and more evil. They will get what they will get for rejecting Jesus. We have a glorious future that awaits us. There will be a day when God says, Enough. Son, it's time. And Jesus will shout from the skies as he comes down from heaven. Let's go. It's time to be given your glorified bodies and to be with me from this point forevermore. And thus, as Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, we will be with him forever. What a glorious day that will be. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this continued conversation between you and the Pharisees and what that reveals about you who you are as God, and what your plan and purpose is for us. 
I pray that if there's anybody here who's feeling that churning of the Holy Spirit in them right now, they know they haven't gotten things right with you. They know that they're, they can't look back on their lives and see a time where they've come before you in prayer and repented of their sins and taken you as a savior for, from those sins and made you the king over the rest of their lives. I pray that if there's anybody here who has never done that, I pray that they would do so right now because we have no clue how much time on earth we have left. And we know at that point it'll be too late. So Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who has never made that decision, I pray that today would be their day of salvation. And for those of us who have and are going through intense spiritual warfare right now, I pray that they would be strengthened. I pray that they would be encouraged, that they would be empowered through the Holy Spirit to know that you will always be with them. You are always strengthening them. You are always giving them the peace and joy that they need through each and every trial, each and every struggle, each and every battle. And one day, you're coming back for us. And we look forward to that, knowing there's still work for us to be done in this world right now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.